Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I hope at this point you are beginning to get a feel for what I have been driving at for several weeks. Chances are we're going to finish this introduction to the Bible and why we trust the Bible. Hopefully we'll finish that this morning. And then we will move on to more doctrinal things next week. If we've learned anything so far... It is that the Bible is trustworthy, that we can have great confidence in the Bible, not only confidence that it is historically accurate, but that it is the very word of God because it proves itself. As we've seen, it proves itself axiomatically, but it also proves itself subjectively. And being the word of God then, and having settled the issue of whether or not it is the word of God, since it is the word of God, we ought to then be able to find great big thematic elements since the entirety of the Bible, all 66 books, have one author. Even though that one author was writing through several different inspired men, as Peter has told us, it's still one thematic idea. And I think if you were to break the primary theme down, the primary theme of the entire Bible is redemption. Whether we're looking at the Old Testament and we see God redeeming Israel out of Egypt or redeeming them out of Babylon, despite their continual rebellion, despite their hard-heartedness, despite their not keeping the law, he is still graciously redeeming his people And the reason that he gives is that he says, they're the ones I chose. Since I chose them, I'm going to be faithful to them, even though they are unfaithful to me, even though they don't follow my rules, my ordinances, my dictates, even though they've killed all my prophets and sent away everything that I've sent to them. Nevertheless, I'm going to be faithful to them because God is consistent in his character and therefore he continually redeems them through the Old Testament. As you get into the New Testament, you find the ultimate redemption story, which is the redemption of Jesus redeeming again his people. And he redeemed his people by giving his life so that our sinfulness was placed on him as he paid our sin debt for us. And then his earned righteousness is then imputed to our account. And by that exchange of our sin being paid for by him and his righteousness being imputed to us, we then, the people chosen by God, become truly redeemed. So the whole theme of the entire Bible is redemption. The primary figure in that entire redemptive story is Christ. In the Old Testament, in type and shadow, and also in direct prophecy, they are all pointing forward saying someone's coming. 
the Messiah is coming. Then you get into the Gospels and you hear the angel Gabriel talking to Mary and saying, name him. The Hebrew name would have been Yahshua, which means God saves, that he's going to redeem his people. And then that name in the Greek is Iesus. As it traveled into the English language, we just say Jesus. But he is also Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so if he is indeed the one who is doing the saving, if he is the primary elect of God, if he is Emmanuel God with us, then his opinion about the word of God is actually higher and more authoritative than any other opinion posed by any other person in the history of planet Earth because he'd be the one who knows. As we saw last week in the beginning when God began making everything, there was the word. He was there. He is the speaking agency for the Godhead who spoke everything into existence in the will of the triune God to accomplish the everything that God had determined to do. Therefore, if he is that intimately connected with God, that he was with God and is God, then when he tells you how you ought to react to God's word, to the Bible, to the scripture, when he tells you how important the scripture is, when he points at the scripture and says, this is the very word of God, you really ought to listen to him because he would be the authority on the subject. Now, one moment ago, I said, the Old Testament is pointing forward saying, somebody's coming. The gospels announce the actual appearance the life and ministry of Jesus on the planet. And then as you get into Acts and then into the epistles, they point backwards to Jesus and say, he's the one that was to come. He is still the central figure of the entirety of the Bible. And as the central figure in the Bible, we ought to pay attention to what he says about the Bible. God repeatedly throughout the Bible declares the value of his own word. And he aligns himself with his word. Every word that comes from God is reliable, it's stable, it's trustworthy, and it becomes the very basis for our faith and confidence. It is because of the things that we read in the word of God that we're willing to thrust ourselves out into eternity because we have read these things. That's how important the Bible is. It doesn't just educate you in this lifetime. It doesn't just give you information about Christianity and your relationship to God. But it gives you the promises, the covenants, and the guarantees that once you leave this planet, you're going to be okay. And you couldn't know that any other way than to have read it in the Bible. What the Bible says about the Bible is of eternal significance. Psalm 138.2 says, David writing, I will bow down toward your holy temple and I will give thanks to your name because of your loving kindness and your truth because you have magnified your word according to all your name. So the very name, the very authority, the very dominion of God 
according to David, is wrapped up in the word of God. In the scriptures, we find the magnificence of God. We find the supremacy of God. We find the sovereignty of God. We find the rulership, but we also find the mercy and the grace and the kindness, the everlasting love of God. All of that is revealed to us in the word. Therefore, everything about God that we need to know can be found in the word of God. And he himself works to magnify his word, some of which we're going to see today. He works to magnify his word according to his own authority, his own name, his own sense of I amness. Make sense? So this morning we are going to look at examples from the Bible of what Jesus says about the word of God, about the scripture. And once we all agree that he is the highest, best authority on the word of God, and once we see what he says about the word of God and how he handles the word of God, then I think we will have had a pretty suitable introduction to the word of God. So then everything else that we build doctrinally from the word of God, we know that that is the very teaching that God intended for us to have. I'm going to start in Matthew 22 for any of you who want to turn there. I'll begin at verse 23. This is one of those places where the Sadducees decided to try to catch Jesus, to try to test him, to try to trip him up. And Matthew takes the time to tell us what the Sadducees were about. The Sadducees don't believe that there is a physical resurrection of the body. And if I wanted to go for the cheap joke, I would say, and that's why they're sad, you see. That lack of reaction will guarantee that that won't make it to the Internet. (laughs) Matthew 22, starting at verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, then Matthew tells us, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses says, and now they quote scripture to Jesus, who is the very living incarnate word of God in shoe leather. Now they're going to quote scripture to him to try to trip him up. Not a good plan. If a man dies having no children... His brother, as the next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. That's true. That is absolutely part of the law of Moses. If a man takes a wife, does not produce an heir, he dies, then his brother was required to take that woman as wife to produce an heir for the family. So then they pose this question based on that law. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married, and he died. And having no children, he left his wife to his brother. So also the second died, and then the third, all the way down to the seventh. And then last of all, the woman herself died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? Because they were all married to her. They think they've caught him logically. 
They're saying, well, if there is indeed a resurrection like what you seem to be teaching, if a resurrection exists, then there's going to be one woman with seven men, and which one of those men are actually her husband since they all had her as wife? Well, then, Jesus, answer that conundrum for us. Which one of them is her actual husband? And you can hear the na-na-na-na, we got you. You can't answer that question. So Jesus says to them, you are mistaken. You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels of heaven. Now he's going to answer their question about the resurrection, and look what he says. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? In other words, he's saying, when you read the scriptures... In the scriptures, you are reading the very word of God, and it is the same as God speaking to you and telling you what he wants you to know. So there you have the authority of Jesus himself, who would know, saying that the scripture is the very word of God, and when you read the scripture, it is like God speaking to you. Now, last week, we talked about subjective proofs of the Bible. But have you ever had that subjective example where you've ever been reading the Bible and, and you recognize, you feel it, you embrace it, that it's the actual word of God speaking directly to you at that moment, telling you something that you need to know right then, bringing you either instruction or bringing you comfort or bringing you some knowledge of what you ought to know about God. That is what the Bible says is going to happen because Jesus himself has told you that when you read the scripture, it is God speaking to you. Therefore, when you read the Bible and you have that sense that God is speaking to you, Jesus says that's valid because the scripture is God himself speaking to you. So he says to them, you don't understand the resurrection but have you not read what was spoken to you by God? And here's what God says. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were all astonished at his teaching. So what did Jesus do to confound the apparent conundrum that the Sadducees placed before him? He went back to what does the scripture say? And he said, when you read the scriptures, that's God speaking to you. And the scripture has already answered your question. And the reason that you could even pose that question to me is because you are mistaken. You don't understand the scriptures. He always goes back to the scriptures and the power of God. And the scriptures say that there is going to be a resurrection, but in that resurrection, there's neither marriage nor given in marriage, and God has already declared himself to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and if they had died and stayed dead, why would he relate himself to them and say that he is the ever-living God of three dead guys 
He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living, which means Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are actually living. And therefore, you don't know what you're talking about. But the important thing I want you to hang on to for the moment is, have you not read what was spoken to you by the word of God, by the scriptures? When you read the scriptures, that is God speaking to you. Turn to Luke chapter 16 in your Bible. We're going to start reading at verse 19. This is the story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, living gaily in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his wounds. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried, and he said, Father Abraham... Have mercy on me, send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus received bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony." And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house because I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Do you understand what Jesus just said? The rich man's in torment. The rich man has five brothers. He says, Send Lazarus back to warn my brethren. And he is told from Abraham himself, Your brothers already have the scriptures. All they need to know to avoid the torment that you're in is already found in the scriptures. They already have Moses and the prophets. So therefore, they already have the Pentateuch. They already have the prophetic books. They have everything in there they need to know to avoid the place of torment. So let them hear them. I also like the way that Jesus refers to the scriptures as hearing it because it is the very word of God speaking to you. They have Moses, they have the prophets, let them hear them. But then he answered and said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they're going to repent. Remember, this is Jesus telling the story. He knows he's going to die, and he knows he's going to rise from the dead. 
And he knows that despite the fact that he rises from the dead, some people are still not going to believe. So in advance, he says, but he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they don't pay attention to the scriptures, then neither will they be persuaded even if somebody rises from the dead. Because Jesus knows in advance that if people don't believe the scriptures, even his own resurrection is not going to convince people. They've already shown what they're made of. They've already proven their stony hearts by the very fact that they don't pay attention to what the scripture says. So you would think that something as cataclysmic as the resurrection of Christ would be enough to convince the whole world that something genuinely unique in human history has occurred and that people ought to come running to this Jesus in order to find out about God and eternal life and judgment. And yet people to this very day continue to reject him despite the fact that he got up from the grave. And he himself says, the reason they reject me despite my resurrection, despite my getting up out of the grave, the reason they don't believe me is they never believed the word of God to begin with. Had they believed the word of God, they would have understood that Jesus was that Messiah and that his work of redemption was complete and that he is the only salvation. He is the only name through whom people need to be saved. He is the only savior on planet earth. They would understand that if they had just read the scripture. It's all right there in front of them. Check into any hotel. There's probably a Gideon's Bible in the drawer. It's readily available. Your phone has access to the internet. Pull up a Bible. It's readily available. You can go into a bookstore and you can buy a Bible. You can put your hands on a Bible somewhere. It's readily available. It's not information that's hidden from anybody. Anyone who wants to take advantage of the word of God on planet Earth, it's available to you. But people won't even believe Jesus despite his resurrection because, according to him, they never believed the word of God. He put the very word of God in preeminence. He put that as the dividing line between the saved and the lost. What do they say about the word of God? So Jesus was walking on the Emmaus Road. While he was walking on the Emmaus Road, he came across a couple of his disciples. And they, as they're walking and discussing, Jesus cloaks himself, hides himself, hides his true identity, and approaches them and says, what are you talking about? And of course, what they're talking about is, apparently, he's resurrected. Some women have told us about this, and, and they're discussing that. Can that be true? Can that be scriptural? Can that, is that happening right now? And Jesus comes up and says... What are you talking about? The very resurrected one, the very living again one, says to them, what are you talking about while they're talking about him and his resurrection? They say to him, are you a stranger? <laughs> how, how do you not know what's happened in these parts? The one who we thought to be the very Messiah, he was killed. And then he was put into the grave. And then after three days, some women came to us and said they went to the grave. And that he's not there. That the body's gone. That the stone is rolled away. And we're, we're so 
perplexed by this. How could all this be the case? We're picking up at Luke 24, verse 25. He said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in everything the prophets have spoken. Notice again that the prophets were not currently speaking. What they had spoken was written down. How would they know what the prophets had spoken? If they read the scriptures. And he says the prophets have predicted my death, burial, and resurrection. And the reason that you don't understand that is because you haven't paid attention to what the prophets have already said to you. The prophets have already spoken this. Was it not necessary for the Christ, for the Messiah, for the Redeemer to suffer all these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. What was he doing? It's a really fascinating thing because once they came to know who he was as he was sitting to eat with them, their eyes were then opened to the very presence of Christ in their midst and then he was gone. And they said, didn't our hearts burn in us as he spoke to us? So what did he really do here? He hid his resurrected body from them, his resurrected presence. His resurrected presence is the validation of everything they're confused about. Everything that has befuddled them about the resurrection is in bodily form standing and speaking to them. And yet he hid that from them until they could see his resurrected self in the scripture. Once he showed them everything concerning himself in the scripture, then he revealed himself. Then they saw it was really him. But what did he do in teaching them? He didn't say, hey, guys, look, it's me. Instead, he said, you don't understand what the prophets said. And I'm not going to leave you in the ignorance of not knowing what the prophets said. And so beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them everything in the scripture that concerned him. He showed them that he should suffer, that he should die, that he should raise again on the third day. And once he explained all that, then he revealed himself to them. But he wanted them to understand it from the very word of God first. Then they got to see him. Now, I think we can apply that a few different ways. Number one, Jesus yet again says, God is speaking through the scriptures. Even his own death, burial, and resurrection is spoken of by the prophets in the scriptures. And if you see the scriptures, if you see Christ in the scriptures, if you see the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in the scriptures, that is tantamount to seeing him, to understanding what it is that God is doing in your life through him, that he is the central figure through whom God is saving you. 
And you will not know that. You will not understand that until you see it in the scriptures. There's no other way for you to know that. You're not going to get it from people telling you bits and pieces. You're not going to get it by sitting by a babbling brook or hugging a tree or or listening to the wind. You're not going to know it by going through some hyper-spiritual exercise that's really all about you in the first place. The only way that you're going to know what Jesus did, what God intended for Jesus to do, what Jesus accomplished, how he came to the planet, how he died, how he resurrected, how he guaranteed your eternal salvation, the only way you're going to know that is if you read the scripture. And that's not me telling you that. That's Jesus himself telling you that. That's the importance of the scripture. That's the reason that I keep saying over and over again that we need to know our Bibles. Because there's no other way that you can know this kind of stuff. Luke 24, verse 44. Jesus says to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything which is written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms, that's the Tanakh, that's the TNK right there, that's the whole of the Old Testament, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketavim, He listed all three of them there because he's talking about the whole of the Old Testament. All the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms have to be fulfilled. Why do they have to be fulfilled? Why can't any jot or tittle fall away? Why can't some little part of the Old Testament just slip away unnoticed? Why does it all need to be fulfilled? For the same reason that Jesus has been repeating over and over again. Because it's the word of God. And because it's the word of God, it does not fail. And because it does not fail, it all has to come to fruition, which means that it all has to be fulfilled. And by the way, let me add just as an extra little parenthetical comment right here. That means that everything written in the Old Testament about Israel has to be fulfilled. Has to. Jesus said so. When we were in the book of Romans, we saw that Jesus was going to fulfill the whole of the promises made to the fathers. Here Jesus again in speaking to his apostles, he says to them, everything written about me in the entirety of the Old Testament All the things that are written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, all of it has to be fulfilled. It has to be accomplished. When this whole thing is wrapped up, when he burns the planet and remakes it into the new heavens and the new earth, when he brings about New Jerusalem, the final chapter of what he has told us about in the Bible, when he actually accomplishes all those things, we're going to be able to look back on the word of God and see that, in fact, every jot and tittle was fulfilled exactly as it was written because Jesus himself said so. Nothing within the word of God is going to fail. Luke eleven twenty seven says, 
It came about that while he said these things, there was a woman in the crowd who raised her voice. This was just Jesus teaching the crowds. And there was a woman who raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. What's she doing? She's trying to advocate for Mary. Wow, you are the Christ. You do seem to be something special. That makes your mom really blessed, really wonderful, and blessed is she. And Jesus doesn't allow for that. Instead, he says, on the contrary. In other words, he says just the opposite of that. You know, the Catholic Church these days says that that Mary is co-redemptrix with Jesus. Co-mediatrix, that she can go and mediate with God on your behalf. Which is why they do the Hail Mary in such a repetitious way. Hail Mary. They just repeat over and over because they're trying to deify Mary by their extra-biblical teaching. But you'll notice that when a woman came to Jesus and tried to advocate for Mary, while blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed, she's really important. While blessed is she, Jesus starts with, No! Jesus starts with, on the contrary. And now look who he says are the blessed ones. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Blessed are those people who hear, which in our case means read, and certainly when he was saying it, the Old Testament, the scriptures were already written. Blessed are those people who hear, who read the very word of God and who then walk by it. Those people who observe it, those people who pay attention to it, prioritize it, and live their lives according to it, he says those people are more blessed than his mom. That's remarkable. Now, I do think in this instance, because she was trying to raise Mary up, and because Jesus knew that the church was going to try to make a co-redemptrix, co-mediatrix out of Mary, he was trying to put all those things in their proper perspective. I don't think he was denouncing his mom in any way. He was just saying, no, she's no more blessed than the people who God has chosen, the people who do understand the word of God, the people who do read the word and observe it. On the contrary, those are the blessed ones. Context. It's all about context, by the way. When you read the word of God, you can't just read little pieces, little snippets, little verses When we were talking about versification a few weeks ago, I said to you that some of the greatest damage that's been done to our understanding of the Bible is when we think of any one verse as a completely separate thought and we pull it out of its context and then treat it like it's the whole rest of the Bible. The most classic example of that is John 3.16. People say, oh, that's the whole of the Bible in one verse, but it's not. Because John 3.18 says the exact opposite of what 3.16 says. So you actually have to pay attention to the context, which means the words that go before and after that verse. Which is why when we teach through the Bible, we do try to take large chunks, pieces of whole chapters, so that we can get a sense for the historic context, for the doctrinal context, for the language context. 
When I went to school, I was taught that the way that you can understand the meaning of any word when you're trying to define a word, if you don't understand the word, if it's a new word to you, you can understand it based on the context of the word. How does the word operate within the sentence? And that will give you a greater sense of how the word is to be understood. Well, it's the same thing with the Bible. When you're reading the Bible, you can only understand any concept, any thought, any statement, any position, any bit of theology. You can only understand it within its context. And if you pull it away from its context, then that gives you the pretext to create all kinds of non-biblical thought and theology. And all too often, people do that, take some non-contextual thing, and then impose it on the conscience of people, and people walk around thinking, because of one out-of-context verse, they think incorrect things about the Bible. That is the way that most preachers who are preaching legalism, that's how they usually work, is by taking verses out of context, and then imposing them on the conscience of otherwise blood-bought saints who shouldn't have that kind of chicanery played on them. So context is very, very, very important. Jesus now is going to demonstrate the importance of context. So he's already told us the word of God is God speaking to us. He has already shown us the priority of the word of God in the way that he hid his resurrected self until the disciples understood from the scripture what he was about, what he was saying. So now that he has given us the priority of the word of God, he's going to demonstrate to us how to read the word of God, how to approach the word of God, the methodology of the word of God. And he's going to do it in Matthew 4, and he's going to do it by contesting Satan himself who's going to try to misuse the context of the Bible. So I'll wait a minute and take a drink while you flip there. I have to confess something to you to show you what a technology wonk I have become. I'm reading many of my notes here off my iPad And so I have to do exactly like Tom did when he stood up here and read scripture. He used his finger to scroll. And so I have to use my finger to scroll. When we were reading a few minutes ago, I was reading out of my Bible about the rich man and Lazarus. And as I was getting to the bottom of the column, I did this with my finger. (laughs) I literally did that. And and I suddenly became very self-conscious of how genuinely technology-infused I've become. And the worst part was, it didn't work. (laughs) Matthew 4, starting at verse 1. You know this story. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That was the whole reason that the Spirit sent him into the wilderness. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, notice the if right there, start with, look, you may be, you may not be, but if you are, then you really ought to prove it. At least prove it to my satisfaction. If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. 
But Jesus answered and said, and he pulled his answer to the devil right from Deuteronomy 8.3. Jesus answered Satan using scripture and started by saying, it is written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, it seems to be that at that point, Satan recognized what the ground rules were. It's like, oh, okay, I tried to tempt you by uh, saying, if you're the son of God, and kind of adding a little doubt there. And I tried to get you to do a miracle, turning some rocks into bread just to demonstrate that you are the son of God. And then you answered me with scripture. Okay, I see the way this is going to work, because the next thing Satan does is yank out some scripture. Okay, if that's the way we're going to go. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. Oh, oh if we're doing the it is written thing. Okay, how about I throw this at you? It says, this is Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. You can go read it. By the way, Satan accurately quotes this. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Notice that Satan is not afraid to quote scripture to the very incarnate living word of God. If he's willing to quote scripture to Jesus, he's willing to quote scripture to you if he can use it to confound you. What did he just do? He used the word of God out of context. Jesus places it into the right context by answering scripture with scripture. Satan was attempting to tempt Jesus Using scripture. Go ahead, throw yourself down. Because you know it's written in the scripture that he's going to send his angels to bear you up so you don't dash your foot against a rock. And since you know that that's what's written, go ahead and try it. Go ahead, tempt him. Go ahead, throw yourself down. Go ahead, make it happen. Go ahead, prove it. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Deuteronomy 6 16. What did Jesus do? He used scripture to correct the misuse of scripture. The misuse of scripture was intended by Satan in order to tempt Jesus to tempt God. But Jesus, the living incarnate word of God, who is all knowledgeable of the word of God, used the word of God to correct the word of God to Satan, who was using the word of God incorrectly. The phrase that I like that I've heard many, many years ago was the cure for wrong use is not no use. The cure for wrong use is right use. When I hear these people taking the Bible out of context, misusing the Bible, imposing it on the conscience of Christians, confusing people, confounding people by the very word of God... That's essentially what Satan did here. And you will notice the tool that was used to correct it. The tool was the word of God. Whenever people are confused by the misuse of the word of God, the way to correct it is the word of God. You can't 
rely on your own logic. You can't rely on your own ability to talk them through things. The only thing that can correct the misuse of the word of God is the proper use of the word of God. That example is given to us by Jesus. Then again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Notice that Jesus does not contend with him and say, the kingdoms of this world don't belong to you. Satan's called the prince of the power of the air. The kingdoms of this world are under his domain, under his influence. The kingdoms of this world are inherently evil Jesus says to him, go from me, Satan. And that word in the Greek means go and keep going. Get behind me. Just get away from me. Go because it is written. Three times now he's gone back to it's written. It's written. It's written. That's the priority that Jesus places on the word of God. Because it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And Satan had just said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. I'll give you everything this world has to offer. I'll give you all the glamour and the glory of this whole world if you'll just fall down and worship me. That misuse, that temptation to glorify Satan and the things of this world were answered with, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him Only the word of God already has an answer. If you are tempted by the things of this world, if you are going to be drawn away from the words of scripture, from the word of God, and if you're going to be drawn away to the things of this world, the word of God has already given you the solution. The word of God has already told you God alone deserves worship. He's the only one that you're to serve. The very fact that you exist right now, the very fact that you have life and breath and know your own name is because God himself has given you life and everything that pertains to life. Therefore, you owe him constant worship. You owe him nonstop thanksgiving. If you had something to eat this morning, that was God's grace to give you something to eat. There are a lot of people on the planet that didn't eat today and won't. But you ate because he was good to you today. You owe him. You owe him thanksgiving. You owe him worship. And the things of this world are going to come to you very temptingly and say, you know, you can have all this. We can give you all these riches. We can give you all this glory. We can really make you somebody important. We can give you power over other people. The world is going to try to entice you away from God if you'll just bow down and worship it. And the word of God says, God alone deserves that worship. Serve him only. And by the way, that's the least you can do for him. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him, proving, by the way, that he didn't have to make bread out of rocks, even though he could have. He said when he was in Jerusalem that if the crowd had been quiet, that the rocks themselves would cry out. He could raise up children of Israel out of the rocks of the ground. He he can do what he wants with rocks. They belong to him. 
But he didn't make bread out of rocks. Instead, the angels of God came to minister to him. He trusted that his father was going to take care of him. He didn't need the riches of this world. Let that be our example, but let us also recognize where he placed the priority of the word of God. Three times he was tempted by Satan, and three times he resisted Satan with the word of God. Three times he said, it is written. Only one time of those three did Satan attempt to bring out a bit of the word of God and use it incorrectly, and Jesus corrected him. So he went after the riches of this world. But what is the priority of the word of God? The word of God, according to Jesus, is the way that you respond to the temptations of Satan and this world. So then in Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, we read this assessment of the word of God. For the word of God is alive. And active. Have you ever had that feeling before where you've been reading the Bible and you've seen something that you've read a thousand times? You, it's some story that you've been familiar with since your childhood. You learned it in Sunday school. And you've read it out of the word of God and suddenly at that moment it came alive for you. It had meaning. It had significance. It had story and teaching to it that you just never saw before. Has that ever happened to you with any other book? No. You can read all the books, but you know what? Once you've read that book, you've read that book. I have books on my bookshelf that I've had on my bookshelf for 20 years. You know why I don't read it again? I read that book. I know that book. If you want to borrow it, I'll give it to you. Yeah, I read it. Here, you can have it. Isn't any good? Yeah, yeah, as I recall, it was pretty good. Here, you can have it. Yeah, I read that book. Not with the Bible. I read it again and again. I keep reading it. Every time I read it, something new jumps out at me. The writer of Hebrews says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's right. The word of God, sometimes I have read it, and it has cut right through me, and I have recognized my own sinfulness, my own depravity, my own failure before God, because I've just been sitting here reading what the word says, and it slices me. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows everything. God sees everything. And we know that because we read the word of God. And as we read the word of God, it slices and dices us. It pierces us through and it demonstrates it's able to judge. It's able to demonstrate to us the thoughts and intentions of our hearts so that we recognize our own failings before God and our desperate need of a redeemer. So then knowing that the word of God 
is sharper than any two-edged sword, it's no accident then, it's no surprise that in Revelation 19.15, Jesus returns to earth with a sharp two-edged sword out of his mouth. Well, what does that indicate? He's coming back with the very word of God in his mouth. And like a two-edged sword, it's going to slice and dice and do its work. It's going to separate. Here's the language. Revelation 19, reading from verse 11, I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe that is dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. There it is again. John starts with, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And we beheld his glory. The Logos of God, the speaking agency of God, was there at the beginning in the creation of everything. When it's time to judge everything and wrap this world up, that same word of God is coming back in a robe dipped in blood with a sharp two-edged sword out of his mouth. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He's the superior one over everything, and from beginning to end, he is referred to not as the power of God or the might of God or the plan of God or the intention of God. He is called repeatedly the Word of God, and he goes around in his ministry pointing people to the Word of God. He corrects the errors of Satan with the Word of God. Do you see the primary place that Jesus himself gives to the word of God. That's all I'm driving at this morning. If you walk out with nothing else this morning, if you get that this is a true and trustworthy volume that has internal evidences of its own honesty and truthfulness and that it is provably, axiomatically, the very word of God, then if Jesus, who is the very incarnate word of God, keeps pointing you to the word of God in written form, don't you think you ought to pay attention to it? Yes. Can you think of anything more important in this lifetime? Nope. I don't care what else you know, what other knowledge you accumulate in this lifetime. I get nothing about chemistry. I don't understand chemistry at all. But there are some people on the planet who, who just have this fabulous, overwhelming understanding of all things chemical. I don't get it. I, I'm not great at math, as I think I've proven here a couple of times. There are some people who get all the math there is to know. There's people who can recite pi out to 20,000 units. There, there's just people who have that kind of knowledge. And if they accumulate all of that knowledge in this lifetime but don't understand the word of God, when their life is over, they've accomplished 
nothing. They've accumulated nothing. They stand before God naked. They stand before God without an excuse. They don't have an answer and they can't change his mind and he's going to judge them because despite what they have accumulated in this life in terms of wealth or in terms of knowledge, all of that means nothing if they don't understand the word of God. That is what's of primary importance in this lifetime. You would think that people would spend more time paying attention to the most important thing in life. And yet there are people walking around on the planet who have never bothered to crack a Bible. The very word of God sits unread in so many places. And someday, some very sad day for them, they're going to stand before God and he's going to judge them based on what they should have paid attention to. The very law of God, the very standard of God, the very knowledge of God that is found between the pages of this book. Do I sound like I'm wrapping up? Because I'm not. Romans 10.17 tells you something really, 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 really important. Faith, which is the trading commodity for which you get righteousness in heaven. Abraham believed God. God counted it to him for faith. You get to the book of Galatians and you read that we who have like faith, like Abraham had, are justified in the same way. Faith is then traded for righteousness. Our faith in Christ and his finished work is the trading commodity. So where do you get faith? Faith, that thing you've got to have. You've got to have the very faith that can be traded for the righteousness of Christ. Where do you get the faith? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? And hearing by the word of God. There you are, back at the word of God. The importance of the word of God. Hearing the word of Christ, hearing the Bible, is how you come to faith. At some point, you read it. At some point, you heard it read to you. At some point, you stood toe-to-toe with what the Bible says about you, about God, and about Christ as mediator, and you came to faith. You can't do that by just like I said earlier, hugging a tree or listening to a babbling brook or listening to the wind. You can't do that by observing nature. You can't do that by some hyper-spiritual, and I use that phrase because I've heard so many people through the years say to me, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. That kind of spirituality doesn't get you the knowledge of the Word of God, and the lack of knowledge of the Word of God means you lack faith in Christ, and the lacking of faith in Christ means you don't get the faith that is the trading commodity for your everlasting righteousness. That's how important it is. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Look, human beings come and go. Okay, now I am actually beginning to wrap up. This is the introduction to the beginning of the start to wrap up. (laughs) Humans come and go. People come and go. Billions of people have been on this planet. Billions of people have already been here. They're dead and gone. They're buried. Their life is done. The best preachers, the best expositors in this world, they come and they go. The best 
preachers you can find in history. I, I love reading books by old dead guys. But they're gone. Those preachers are gone. Their life is over. Generation by generation, men and women have been raised up, and God may call them to preach his word, but they all at some point pass from the scene. But you know what remains? The word. The word word remains regardless. So don't put too high a stock in any biblical teacher especially if you're putting them above the Bible because they can't save your soul. I can't save your soul. I can't do anything to make you more righteous. I can't get you to behave. Preachers come and go. Hopefully faithful preachers will guide you back to the word of God because that's what's going to save your soul. That's where the primary importance is that's where you're going to learn about Christ that's where you're going to learn about God's history of redemption and the word remains the word continues people pass the word remains the word does its work like we read a couple weeks ago God said it's not going to return to me void it's going to accomplish that whereunto I sent it He's going to continue sending his word, and it's going to accomplish his purpose. Isaiah 40, verse 8, by the way, in the Bible, says that very thing. The word of God says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The world turns, life changes, the word of God does not change. It's written down, and even Jesus referred to it as, it is written. Having been written, you can trust it. Or in Matthew 24, 35, as Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So it's all about the word of God. So we can do no better than to stick to the text because the text is the very word of God. I don't understand why anybody, anywhere in any pulpit, would impose their opinion or their cleverness or their creativity onto something that is already eternally perfect. You don't need to add anything to the Bible. You don't need to take anything away from the Bible. It accomplishes what it is meant to accomplish. So then that takes us back to where we began. It takes us back to 2 Timothy chapter 4. So then I solemnly charge you, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God, remember that God is always watching. Remember the omnipotent God who knows everything. He's paying attention. He knows whether we're preaching our own imagination. He knows whether we're calling people to our own creativity or whether we're calling people to the very word of God. I solemnly charge you in the very presence of God and in the presence of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, he's still coming, he's coming back, and he's going to establish his kingdom in fulfillment with everything the scripture has already said is going to be accomplished. So Paul takes that eschatological bent and says, God is watching, Christ is watching. And he who is coming back to establish his kingdom and by his appearing and the knowledge that he's coming back and that he's going to judge everything according to his word, here is my charge to you, preach 
the word. Preach the word. Preach the word. Don't preach you. Don't preach your imagination. Don't preach your creativity. I'm not going to live much longer. That's not an announcement that I know something. But, but the first 64 years flew by pretty quick. I assume the remaining years are going to go pretty quick as well. Somebody else is going to stand here. Somebody else is going to tell you, hopefully, the word of God. Whoever that person is, once I'm gone, preach the word. Amen. Preach the word. Be ready. In season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Instruct people. Preach the word, teach the word. Teach the word, preach the word. Because it is the very word of God that is going to instruct you in everything you need to know to get you from here to your predestined glory with God. And nothing else will do that. So then what compares? There's nothing else that will accomplish your eternity. So how are you going to know about the redemption that Christ proffered? How are you going to know about your own sin and depravity and your desperate need for him? How are you going to know that the God who is everlasting in his love has an everlasting love for you? How are you going to know that except to go to the word of God, hear the word of God, read the word of God, teach the word of God, preach the word of God? Do you get it? Preach the word. If you walk out with nothing else and somebody says to you later today, what did you learn at church this morning? What are you going to say, Olivia? Preach the word. That's all there is. That's the right answer. Preach the word. Steve, what's the point of this morning? Preach the word. We just have to preach and teach the word of God. And that will accomplish everything God sent it here to accomplish. Got it? it. Yes, sir. All right. Questions? Yes, sir, George. Do the words of the Bible raise any issues about which reasonable people can differ? They might have different interpretations of the word. Yeah, because as it goes through the process of translation, some of the English words that we use don't capture some of the breadth and nuance of some of the Greek words. And so that's why as you read different translations, you'll find different English words translating that Greek word. Well, that's a difference of opinion. See, I think there are some people that are acting in bad faith and imposing their own opinions. Right. But there are probably thousands of other people who are trying to act in good faith and they're trying to either preach or at least repeat the word as they see it. And they're not all the Right. Same. Uh, that's why I'm so glad that God is merciful. Amen. Yeah. But the big issues of the Bible, Christ as Redeemer, yeah. there's no room for differing of opinion there. At this point, there's differing opinions about eschatology, obviously. Whether you're pre-mill or ah-mill or post-mill. Or, and people argue about that. And the reason that they argue about it is because it hasn't happened yet. 
But as far as the stuff that has happened, that the Bible says has been fulfilled, well, there's no arguing there. There's no difference of opinion. So I agree with you that there is genuine intellectual difference and disagreement about some of the translational errors and understanding of particular Greek words, and fair enough. But on the primary doctrines of the Bible, I don't see any room for argument. It says what it says. Our job is to bring ourselves in league with what it says. Anything else? That was a good question. I'm sorry, I didn't just grade you. but <laughs> Yes, ma'am. What do you do when you're um, trying to present an issue to someone? So, like, recently I've had to, like, defend my position on marriage a lot um, and what marriage looks like in the Bible. And what do you do when you're, like, presenting context, but, like, the person that you're trying to defend your position to is arguing, arguing that you're taking scripture out of context? And you're saying that they're taking scripture out. Like, how do you defend? That's a fairly common argument. When you say something from the Bible that people don't like, people who don't seem to understand what it means to preach in context or read in context will use that phrase. Well, you're taking that out of context. Or like the role of women in churches. That's like the biggest one problem. Right, exactly. I'll say, well, you took that out of context. Mm -hmm. But all you really have to do is exactly what Jesus did. You don't have to convince them. That's not your job. Because if you're convincing them based on your technique or your cleverness or whatever else, whatever you can talk them into, somebody else can talk them out of. A more persuasive speaker comes along and convinces them. All you have to do is show it to them in the Word of God. All you have to do is put the Bible in front of them and say, there it says it right there. Now it's between you and God. Because he said it. You're denying it you got a much bigger problem than me. Go back to Paul writing to Timothy and Titus. And he says what the qualifications are for deacons and elders. And he puts them all in the male gender. Husband of one wife. That's, that's male gender. If he puts all the leadership in the church, all the qualifications in the male gender, there's your answer. There it is. It's right there. If they want to continue to argue it or defend that women should be preachers or leaders in the church, then their problem is not with you. Their problem is with God because God's word has already been clear on the subject. Make sense? I know it's hard to walk away from those arguments, though, because you think, I'm going to argue with you about this till you see it my way. And they're just going to keep arguing back with you. But notice that even Jesus didn't do that with Satan. He said, here's the word of God, here's the word of God, here's the word of God. And then he answered with, now get behind me. I think sometimes we have to be willing to do that. Look, here's the word of God. Now you contend with the word of God because your fight's not with me. Make sense? Anything else? Yes, sir? You can say, you mentioned gender, there it is. So then they attack gender. There's no, you know. What is gender now? <laughs> oh, don't bring gender fluidity into the subject. Right. That's like, there's no end yeah. to I ought to be a pastor because I... Yeah. There's no end to that argument. I count myself, I know, because of the society. Right. When Paul wrote those words, there was two genders. And by the way, today, there's two genders. Amen. That hasn't changed. And why hasn't it changed? Because the Word of God says, in the beginning, he created them male and female. Two genders... That's a closed subject. That argument's over. 
anything else, as long as I'm up here about to get political. All right. Well, then, grab your chorus book, and we're going to sing number 15 in your chorus book, if you would, Steve. For listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.